Genesis 1 through 11. We're actually going to wrap up in chapter 12 this morning. And then next week, we're going to start a series through the Gospel of John. Uh, So I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, please open to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 10, and I'm going to read our passage of study for this morning. Genesis 11, verse 10. James, this is your moment of payback. Another genealogy. (laughs) I know, I could have given this one to him, but I didn't. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) All right, Genesis 11, verse 10. This is the word of the Lord for the church this morning. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashid, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashid, 500 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashid had lived 35 years, he'd fathered Shelah. And Arpashid lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Reu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years, and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor had lived 29 years, he'd fathered Terah. And Nahor lived, after he fathered Terah, 119 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Isaac. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time of the Canaanites were in the land. 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west of Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negev. This is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. As we continue to go through this passage this morning, uh, I just want to continue to re-emphasize again and again uh, through our people a little conversation that we've had. So who can share the story of the Bible in four words with me? Four words, the story of the Bible. I know Ryan's got it. I might have to call on him if nobody else volunteers. Ryan's nailed it. Okay, Caleb, let's go. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The entire story of the Bible can be summarized in these four words. Creation. God created the world. He created everything that is within it. He created man in his image and in his likeness. He created man to have dominion over the earth. God formed the earth and he filled the earth. Then we have fall. As man was created in God's image and in his likeness to be with him, he actually ends up in Genesis chapter 3 rebelling against God through the deception of the serpent. And this leads to a separation that exists between God and man. And this separation uh, means a loss of community. It means that there will be a time where they will come where they will face labor in their work. They will face the pain of childbearing. And there will be a, uh, a tension that exists between man and woman. And their relationship will be faltered because of this rebellion. But ultimately, God gives us a promise in Genesis 3 that there will be one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. There will be this line of the evil one, the line of the serpent, and the line of the faithful one that comes from the skull crusher who will be the redemptor or the redeemer for God's people. That's where we see that, that next picture, redemption. That redemption will come ultimately who we see redemption coming through is the person of Jesus Christ. He comes and he dies on the cross. He's buried. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. And if we would repent of our sin, if we would turn from our rebellion and trust in him by faith in what he's accomplished on the cross, we can now be in right relationship with God. And ultimately, the good news is that God who created the world, who created mankind, who created everything within it, even in our rebellion, as he provides a way for us to be rescued and redeemed, he will restore everything to its intended order. This is the story of the Bible from four words. Now, can somebody share the story of the gospel with me in four words? All right, Freddie, yeah, go ahead. God, man, Jesus, response. All right, so who is God? What is he like? God is perfect. He is holy. He is just. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is over all things. He is sovereign. We, we see his holiness is, is far superior to our holiness. And who is man? What are we like? We are made in God's image. We're made in his likeness. But we've turned from him. We've rebelled against him. And now this separation means that we need somebody to save us. And so Jesus comes and lives his perfect life, dies on the cross in our place for our wrongdoing. He's buried and resurrected so that we can now be in right relationship with God that comes through repentance and faith. That's the ultimate response, right? So the story of the Bible in four words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The story of the gospel, the central message of Christianity, 
God, man, Jesus response. Okay, so let's do this together. Okay, the story of the Bible. Let's say creation. Creation. Oh, yes. Fall. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, you guys are awake. This is good. Redemption. Uh Uh-huh. Restoration. Okay, let's share the story of the gospel. Maybe take a sip of coffee first. It might help. Okay. (laughs) All right, God. Man. Christ. Response. Wow, I don't think you had any coffee. That was much better. Good job, friends. All right, so this is a framework that we need to continue again and again to remind ourselves of. This is a story that we should memorize. It's something that we should, we should know and hold on to with all of the hope that is within us because the Bible tells us that we need to have a defense or hold an account of the hope that is within us. So if you know Jesus this morning, if you have been rescued, if you've been redeemed, if you have been saved, you need to know the story so that you can tell others about it. But here, why are we going through the book of Genesis? Through the book of Genesis, we want to show you the foundations of the story of the Bible and show you how God is continuing throughout the entirety of the Bible. Every book of the Bible points back to this message of God's goodness and redemption in Jesus. So this morning, we're looking specifically in Genesis 11 and 12. And our big idea for the the sermon this morning is this. God makes and redeems a people for himself. God makes and redeems a people for himself. And and so uh, I graciously avoided uh, giving James another genealogy to read. But one thing that genealogies teach us again and again is that God is faithful. So as we look at Genesis, we need to see just a couple of of key passages to remind ourselves of what God has done. So flip back to Genesis 1. Look quickly at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. In Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, we hear this. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's call to Adam and Eve. As he presents the creation of man, he shows us again that he's made in the image of God, made in the likeness of God, that God has created humans to be male and female, and then he gives them this call. God blesses them. So the command of God on the life of humans is a blessing. Hear that again. The command of God for humans is a blessing. We can see that in God's commandments, we are blessed because we can walk in obedience to him. So he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish, over the birds, and over every living thing that moves. So God gives them this task. And then we find out Genesis 3. Again, quickly look. Verse verse 2, we're we're introduced to the serpent. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
the serpent deceives Eve. She twists the words of God. God did not actually say to her that if you, you touch it, you will die. He said, if you eat it, you will die. So he twists her words and, and makes her uh, not believe the commandments of God, and this leads to rebellion. Adam and Eve take into, into this fruit, and then we find that they are separated from God. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the picture of a redeemer come in Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve have been told that there will be this promise that somebody will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so they, they have their children, and they see in Cain and Abel, and they think, man, here comes the promise of God in real life. This might be the one who will redeem us and bring us back, reconcile us to God. But the reality is that Cain actually is jealous of his brother Abel and then kills his brother. And the blood of an innocent man is shed and then Cain is cast from the presence of God. And so we're, we're brought to this conflict. The conflict that exists is, how is God going to redeem and rescue a people for himself if all of these people just continue to run away from him? Adam and Eve have run from him. Cain has acted in rebellion. And so God tells us in the latter part of Genesis 4 that, Cain, or that Adam and Eve have another child who's named Seth. And Seth is the one who that they find their hope through. So Genesis 5 is the first big genealogy that we see within the the Bible. And through Genesis chapter 5, we see God lays out ten different generations of people who will be made in his image and in his likeness. And at the end of this, this line from Seth, we see the person of Noah. And Noah is going to be the, the picture, the hope that will come for the reconciliation of mankind. But right after this genealogy, we're introduced to another problem that exists within the earth. It tells us in Genesis 6 that the Lord saw the wickedness of the man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. So, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel separated from God, rebellion exists, you're kind of introduced to this conflict. How is God going to make this happen? Genesis 6, after we see in this genealogy that God's going to be faithful, that he's going to fulfill his promise through uh, Seth's line, we, we come to Genesis 6 and we're just reminded again that humanity just continues to fall short of God's glory and goodness. Every thought of the human was evil continually. Now, now this isn't just the idea of like they're bad people and good people. This is the absolute sense of corruption in humanity. Every single thought, every core part of their being was rebellious against God. And so God has to act. He has to do something. And, and through Noah, he tells him that he's going to bring a destruction to the earth through the flood. He's going to, he regrets the, the creation of man. He regrets the creation of the world. He's, he sees this sorrow. He regrets how they've acted in their rebellion toward him. And he says, Noah, I've, I've got to do something about this. So he brings a flood, and he promises Noah that if he builds the ark, if he walks with him in obedience, if he takes his family, that through Noah, he will now reestablish a line of faithfulness to the seed of the woman. And so Genesis 7, 8, and 9 shows the, the obedience of Noah and how he walked in, in, in God's goodness and glory. And God continued by answering the problem that existed within humanity answering the problem of creation, and then bringing 
blessing through Noah. But even Noah could not provide the way of redemption. Noah was not the ultimate answer to all the problems of humanity. Noah rebels against God. He, he works against the land, and he, he ends up uh, creating a vineyard and then is, is, is drunk and naked. And his sons, uh, one of the sons comes and says, Dad's naked, we've got to do something about this. I'm just going to run away again, right? Our friend Phil, who came and preached Genesis 3, said you can't just jump into the bushes and hide from God, right? You, you can't just expect him not to see what's going on in his world that he's created, in his sovereignty and power. He runs away from, from God. But God, through Noah, gives Canaan a curse and his brothers, Japheth and Shem, a blessing. And then we arrive here to our passage after we see the nations come from Noah and then the Tower of Babel where humanity again is showing their depravity and they're running from God. They're building a tower and they're trying to basically solve the problem of being dispersed throughout the entire world. But God tells us in Genesis 9 that someone will come through Genesis 10 and 11 and 12 through the line of Shem to bring about his promises, to make his faithfulness shown and seen. And so, Genesis 11 starts with the generations of Shem. As we see verse 10, where we are here, we need to see that as God makes and redeems a people for himself, he is faithful to his promise. His his promise is that he is going to bring someone who will crush the serpent. And so Shem is the beginning of this promise. He's the beginning of the faithfulness, again, where we see God's word continue in verse 11, we find out that there are 10 generations from Genesis 10, 11, verse 10, through, through 26. There are actually nine, and Terah is presented into this 10th generation who ultimately focuses in on the person of Abram. So, big picture idea for Genesis 11, verses 10 through, through 32. God is faithful to make a people. Through the generations, as you see genealogies again and again and again in the Bible, highlight their importance by remembering that God is faithful to his promise. In Genesis 5, in Genesis 10, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, even in to the beginning of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 1, we see what? A genealogy. And what is it meant to show us? That God made a promise and that he's going to live and walk it out. But really our focus this morning needs to be in Genesis 12. And verses 1 through 9. So again, look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 with me. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes a promise in Genesis 3 that there will be someone to come to redeem the people. Genesis 4, we see turmoil. 5, a promise. 6, turmoil. 6 and a half into 7, a promise again. 8, turmoil. 9, a promise coming to life. 10, oh boy, turmoil again. 11, oh boy, turmoil. 11 and a half, promise. And this promise comes through Abram. And every time along the way, God makes a covenant with Adam in chapter 5. 
says that he will continue to work with him and through him. In Genesis chapter uh, 9, we see God make a covenant with Noah that he will not destroy the world again. And then here in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram and he makes a new covenant with Abram. This is one of the most important covenants of the Bible. Because what we see here is, so first verse 1 is an instruction. So the Lord is speaking to Abram, and he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So his first call is, go away from this place that you're in. And so where is he? He's, he's in the land of Haran. He's, he's been settled with the Chaldeans. We find out, we kind of see the scene set in verses 27 through 32 of chapter 11. And Terah in his three sons, again, another reflection back to what God has already done in Genesis 5 and Genesis 10. Three sons that are coming through here. They're living in this land, but this is a land of idolatrous worshipers. They don't worship Yahweh. They worship false gods. And so the Lord's commandment to Abram is to go from this place and to go to the place that he will show him. So the the first part of this covenant is the promise of a place, the promise of a land. A land where God's people will gather. God's people will see his presence and his power and his provision. So it says, go and and bring your kindred to this land that I will show you. Verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So the Lord says that he will bring Abram to a place, that he will make him secondly into a nation, so what does that mean, right? So when we think of nations, my first thought was the United States of America. We have, what, 376 million people in the United States? Something around those lines, maybe 400 million people in the United States. It's a lot of people in a nation, right? And then you, like, go to China and numbers explode, right? Um, yeah, yeah, you can go into one city and it's much larger than, than we can imagine. Um, But God, as he makes a nation, he doesn't just make uh, a number of people. He sets government, and he sets style, and he sets leaders in place. And so God's blessing to Abram is, yes, I will multiply you. We find out later in Genesis 15 that God's promise to him is, I will make your descendants like the grain of the the sand of the sea. I mean, if if you pick up a grain of sand, like... You just pick up a handful of sand and drop it out. That's a lot of sand, a lot of different grains, right? If you've ever tried to pick up rice after a kid spilled rice in the kitchen, oh, sand in the kitchen or sand in the car, right? After you go to the beach and you're picking up sand out of the car, nightmare, right? It's everywhere. You find it weeks later. It's like glitter, although glitter is kind of worse. <laughs> but nonetheless, God says that he will increase these people, that he will make Abram into a nation. So he's bringing him to a place. He's going to make him a great nation, a powerful nation. He will bless those, and he will make his name great. And then verse 3, the third part of this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Lord says that he will bring Abram to a place, that he will make a people and a nation for himself, and then he will continue to bless him, and this blessing will extend to not just the nation and the people, but to the entirety of the earth. But 
just important that we take for a moment into consideration what is actually being said here. So notice this covenant, right? When you think of a covenant, right, so when you get married, when Rachel and I got married, we made vows to each other. We made a covenant before God. It said, till death does us part, we will be faithful to these promises. So our our vow, our covenant before God is is a promise that we're making. It's, It's I will and you will and we will together honor the Lord. As we see the covenants that have been established so far in Genesis, we don't see like a, a balance between God and people here. God is continuing to say, I will do this. And the people are the recipients of God's covenant with them. So, I will make a people. I will save you. I will redeem you. Genesis 9, as Noah comes and the flood happens, I will not redestroy the earth through another flood. This is nothing to do with, man, has everything to do with God's faithfulness and his power and his word. And then here in Genesis chapter 12, notice again, the Lord does not say, hey, Abram, do all these things and I will bless you because you've done them. He says, first and foremost, go from your idolatrous land into the land that I will show you, right? So there is a command to go, but then he says, everything after this going is, I will, I will, I will. I will bring you to land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Secondly, as we think about covenant, we need to recognize first, right, that that this is God's word to his people, that, that God is the one who carries out the covenant. He's the one that's faithful to the covenant because if the covenant existed between God and man and we had a part to play in it, we would just continue to run away from him. We'd hide in the bushes, but God is faithful, so he doesn't hide in the bush and shows us his goodness. But second, we need to see that God's blessing is in his blessing. This is not prosperity gospel. This is not the opportunity for God to come in and say here, hey, if you do all these things, I'm going to give you money and riches and wealth. Well, Abram did experience those things. They were a gift from God, but he also went through some turmoil. Uh, the second half of this story is when we're, we see Sarai and Abram in Egypt, the Egyptians come and they see Sarai and they think that she's a beautiful woman. And Abram is a coward and gives his wife away to these people. Uh, I wouldn't call that blessing. I would call that uh, a great trial. And Abram fails. Uh, let's talk about another biblical figure who is blessed by the Lord, Job. Job had everything that you could imagine. He had kids that loved him. He had a a wife that loved him. He had all of the the livestock that he needed. He had a home. He had money. He had friends. He had power. He had influence. And the Lord sees Satan comes and is in the presence of God. And he says, hey, that Job is living pretty comfortably. And the Lord says, he's going to be faithful. He's a man of faithfulness. And so God allows Satan to tempt Job into work into his life. So Job has everything he needs. Satan comes in, destroys his life. His kids run away from him. His wife tells him to curse God and die. His house falls apart. His livestock goes. His friends come to him and they say, Job, you've got to be doing something wrong. There must be some sort of sin in your life. And Job just continues to cry to the Lord. Lord, what have I done? Where are your promises? And the Lord and Job have this really interesting dialogue. Right? 
where Job is like complaining to God and God's like, hey, where were you? Where were you when I created these things? Where were you when I established the world and made all of these promises to these people? Where were you? How, who are you in, in all of these things? Who am I? And so the idea here is that we just need to be reminded that God's promises to his people rest on God. And what we think is good isn't always what God sees to use for our good. This makes me think of Romans chapter 8. That no matter what trial we've been through, no circumstance can separate us from the love of God because it's based on his action. He is saving. He is loving. He is faithful. And we serve a God who not only is faithful to his word, but holds his word for his people. He holds us in his hand. What an amazing picture. So this isn't a formula of, hey, do these things and you will have all the wealth in the world. Jesus said to the disciples, the world will hate you because it has hated me. It's not a promise of do all these things and everything will work out like rainbows and unicorns. It's a promise if you walk in faithfulness to God, God will remember you. There's nothing like being remembered by the Lord. The Lord remembered Noah and was faithful to his promise. The Lord remembered Adam and he promised to make a redeemer from her. The Lord remembers Abram and his promise, and he sends him out to these places. So he says, I'm going to bless you. Those who don't take you seriously is a way that that could be translated in in verse 3. I I will curse them. I'll be faithful to my word. So God makes all these promises, and then verse 4, we see Abram act. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Look quickly back at those genealogies for a second. Just scan over them. Notice something here? Like all of the, the, the lines of men who are listed here in the genealogy, they, ha- they had lived, what, 30 years, 35 years, 34 years, 30 years, 32, 30, 29. And then God gave them children. God gave them his blessing. Then you arrived to Terah, who had lived 70 years, like twice the amount of time that these other men had lived. And then God gave him children. And so Abram comes again, and he's even older than his father, and, his, and the Lord is speaking to him, saying, I will do these things to you. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but wouldn't you have a little thought in your mind where it's like, you sure? You sure? Because I'm like twice the age of all of these other folks. My wife is barren. We've gotten to a point where this is now laughable. Is this going to work? But the Lord tells him to go, in verse 4, Abram went. 75 years old, he goes and he departs from Haran and he takes his wife, he takes his his brother's son and all of their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. They followed God's word. They were obedient. And not only did Abram take his family, it says that he took all of the people that he acquired with them. He took this people that had gathered with him and he followed the word of the Lord and he obeyed him. He said, Lord, you're going to make these promises? 
I might be old, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to see your faithfulness. And so he goes into the land of Canaan, and as verse 6, as Abram passed the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, at the time the Canaanites were in the land, then verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram. So not only did he walk with him in obedience, but then verse 7, he actually gets to be in the presence of God. This is a theophany. This is a moment where God exposes himself to his people. I don't know exactly how he did this. It doesn't say that there was an angel of the Lord, but we see that the Lord appears to Abram. He's before him, and he says to him, to your offspring, I will give you this land. So Abram has been walking with the Lord, walking with these people, waiting for God's provision, and and the Lord appears to him and says, this is it. This is what I'm going to give you. And so Abram's response in the second half of verse 7 says, he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He worshipped God. He worshipped God for his goodness and his faithfulness to his word. He stopped and he praised the Lord. He built an altar to him and reminded himself of God's faithfulness and his promises. And we as his people can be reminded of this. As we see God be faithful to his promises, we ought to respond in worship. That doesn't necessarily mean build an altar, but it might mean sing a song. It might mean take a moment of reflection. It might mean think back to the promises of God and and remind yourself of those truths. Then we see in verse 8, he moves to the hill country on the east of Bethel. He pitches his tent in, in Bethel on the west of Ai. And again, he builds an altar to the Lord. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. So he, he sees that God is determining every single one of his steps. He's relying on God's faithfulness to lead him into this place that he has promised him. And every time he stops, he, he stops and he praises God. Man, I was so convicted of this when I was reading this this week. Because there are those moments where, you know, you, you hear people pray, and I'm like, God, thank you for letting me put my feet on the ground today. That just kind of seems like one of those things where you're like, wow, that's, that's neat. I don't, I don't know if, know if I would have thought to pray for that. Uh, there are also times where you're like, mm, that person's being a little extra right now, aren't they? <laughs> and the Lord just like, convicted me and made me think, no, it is a gift. It is a gift. Every moment that we have is a gift given by God. And God continues to give us moments and steps and puts us in places and with people that love him around us. And we need to see that as a gift, a treasure, something to be cherished by, by us as Christians. So I had my moment of repentance and confession. Lord, help me to be a more thankful person. But every, every step of the way, as he journeyed on, he went from place to place and he remembered God's promises. And so I just want to remember God's faithfulness through this church. I want to take a moment to just remind you of the story of what God has done here in Hebron. This church was founded in 1716. The United States wasn't even formed yet as a nation. And God had started his work through the gospel in Hebron, Connecticut. He proclaimed the gospel through this place. There was some turmoil on that. <laughs> it wasn't always rainbows and unicorns. But the Lord 
continue to increase and make a people through this church. In the 1700s and the 1800s, this place was thriving. At one point, there were 300 members in this church, 300 in the town of Hebron, which we're at like 10,000 people right now. But can you imagine even centuries earlier? I don't think Hebron was that big of a town. But the Lord had been making a people through the means of the gospel. He didn't make it through a really nice building. He didn't make it through some sort of preacher. He made it through the gospel. He made a church through the gospel. And he continued to build the church through the gospel. And in the 1800s, it was even so powerful that there were people who had come here and actually set the building afire. And the Lord built the church again. And a, a second fire came, and the Lord built the church again. And here, our third building in our church's history, all of Main Street was on fire in 1882. But the Lord built this place, and it stands today as a reminder that the gospel will not be stopped. And so through the 1900s, there's been 30, I'm the 30th pastor in the church's history. It's an average tenure of five years per pastor. There was a man who served here for 50 years as a pastor. There were people who were here for months. In fact, in the early 90s, there were, there were three pastors in one year. But the Lord is continuing to build his church through the gospel. Do I need to remind you what 2017 was like? As we were gathered here as a people, small in number, there was a point even in the earlier 2000s where there were five people in this church. And they almost closed the doors, but they were convicted to continue in the gospel. And the Lord built their number. And new people became new Christians. And they were hearing the gospel and turning to the gospel. And God was continuing to build his church. It went from this giant spike of 300 members down to barely keeping the doors open. And the Lord built his church and is building his church slowly and steadily. And take a look today. Around. Look around and see God's faithfulness. This is through the gospel that he is building his church. It's not just by the number of people that are here, but by our walk with the Lord. We don't just fill chairs. We come to work together, work day together. We don't just sit here on Sunday. We gather together Monday through Saturday. We love each other because the gospel is faithful. Because God, through the gospel, makes a people for himself. So in Abram, God promised that he would make a nation. But this promise would not ultimately be fulfilled until the person of Jesus would come. So Adam and Noah and Abram, they were this promise that was shown that God would build his people, that he would make them for himself. And then Jesus continues by making an absolute sign of authority from God that he is serious about salvation. He dies on the cross for our sins. He is buried and resurrected. And God shows his power through Jesus that he is indeed at the work of salvation. And the church exists today to continue to proclaim that God is still about the gospel. So friends, look around today and see the fulfillment of the gospel and be encouraged, be strengthened, and know that God is still at work and he still wants to use the gospel to build this church and other gospel-preaching churches in our area. A lot of people think New England's hard ground. I think it's coming alive again. 
but it will only come alive by the means of the gospel. So our aim is to be faithful to it. Join me in prayer. Father, would you remind us of your faithfulness through the gospel? God, I pray this morning that you would just encourage us afresh. Remind us of your faithfulness in the history of this church. Remind us again of your, your faithfulness, even in what has happened recently. I thank you for um, some, some new conversions, some new Christians that have come through our church, uh, who have come in and have now trusted in Jesus. I, I pray that you just continue to help them as they grow in the Lord, where they, they can be encouraged by your people, would they be hungry for the Bible? God, would they see your power and might? God, I thank you for the growth of our church through membership and people who are committing themselves to uh, be accountable and responsible for your gospel work here and these people. God, I thank you for visitors. I thank you for people who are coming and hearing about Church of Hope and are checking things out. God, all of this exists because you were faithful to your word. And you are going to continue to be faithful to it through the gospel. So help us to be about it in everything we do, everything we are, and every philosophy we have. May we come back again and again to the good news that Jesus has made a way for us to be in right relationship with you. God, as we sing as your people today, may we sing about your characters. We respond with holy, holy, holy. God, may our voices sing aloud. May we be encouraged by your words, may we be reminded of your holiness and how you establish your people and redeem them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to respond with us as we sing Holy, Holy, Holy. If you'd like to stand or sit, whatever is comfortable for you, we'll close out by singing the song.